Hello and welcome to Sonnet Cast, William Shakespeare's sonnets recited, revealed and relived. I am Sebastian Michael and this is Sonnet 24. Mine eye hath played the painter and hath stelled thy beauty's form in table of my heart. My body is the frame wherein tis held and perspective it is best painter's art for through the painter must you see his skill to find where your true image pictured lies which in my bosom's shop is hanging still that hath his windows glazed with thine eyes now see what good turns eyes for eyes have done mine eyes have drawn thy shape and thine for me are windows to my breast where through the sun delights to peep to gaze therein on thee yet eyes this cunning want to grace their art they draw but what they see no not the heart with the complex and in its conclusion quietly insightful sonnet 24, William Shakespeare looks more closely at what is happening between him and the young man whom he has declared his passion for, and he does so in a tone that manages to be both hopeful and realistic, so as not to say resigned, at the same time. It spreads the short shadow of doubt that Sonnet 23 had already tentatively cast over the relationship, but it still does so in the subtlest of ways, leaving plenty of room for the renewed optimism that will follow briefly in Sonnet 25. What, though, does it actually mean? Mine eye hath played the painter and hath stelled thy beauty's form in table of my heart, my eye has played the painter and has drawn or painted an image of your beauty on the board that is my heart. Stel, as a verb, is fairly uncommon. It means to put or to fix, but also to delineate or portray. The idea is that the poet's eye has made a portrait of the young man, perhaps similar to the, at the time, very fashionable miniatures, which would have been painted on a piece of wood rather than, say, on a canvas, let alone paper. My body is the frame wherein it is held, my body acts as the picture's frame, and perspective, it is best painter's art, and the depiction of you is done with the highest painterly skill. Worth noting perhaps at this point are two things. Firstly, perspective, as you may have noticed, is stressed on the first syllable, perspective for prosody, so that the line scans properly. Secondly, Perspective, which here is used quite generally to mean the truthful representation of what the eye sees, is a source of great fascination for artists of the late 16th and early 17th century, and in places extremely skillfully employed to achieve trompe l'oeil effects or to hide objects or people within paintings. There is a fabulously famous Renaissance painting by Hans Holbein the Younger called The Ambassadors. This dates back to 1533, so it's a little bit earlier than these sonnets. It's maybe 60, 70 years thereabouts 
before these sonnets were probably written. But there, in that painting, in the ambassadors, there is a blot of colour, it looks like. But if you look at it from the right angle, you will see a death's head, a skull, which is highly symbolic. And it would go way too far for me to explain this here now. But just to make the point that perspective drawing and painting is, by the time these sonnets are written, less than 200 years old and of unparalleled significance to all of Renaissance art and architecture, and therefore, of course, quite readily finds its way here into what is, after all, an English Renaissance poem. For through the painter must you see his skill to find where your true image pictured lies. It is, after all, through the painter's eyes and his art that you get to see a true picture or reflection of yourself rather than, say, through a mirror, which in my bosom's shop is hanging still. The picture which is painted onto my heart is and will therefore always be hanging or living in my breast, which thus acts as a shop or perhaps more precisely workshop or atelier, as we would say today, where an artist would keep and also exhibit their art. The still here, as every so often in Shakespeare, has a meaning more of always, with a continuous vector into the future, rather than our understanding of something that was so in the past and is so now, but may or may not continue to be so into the future. That hath his windows glazed with thine eyes, and the windows of this shop or workshop are glazed with your eyes, his refers to the shop. Again, it is not uncommon for Shakespeare to use a personal pronoun for an object, and glazed is pronounced with two syllables, that hath his windows glazed with thine eyes. Now see what good turns eyes for eyes have done. Now see what favours or mutually beneficial deeds, good turns, our eyes have done for each other. Mine eyes have drawn thy shape, and thine for me are windows to my breast, where through the sun delights to peep, to gaze therein on thee. My eyes have drawn you, or painted you, and your eyes act as the windows to my breast, through which the sun enjoys looking at you, because that is where the picture that my eyes have made of you is held. Yet eyes this cunning want to grace their art. They draw but what they see, know not the heart. But eyes lack one particular skill to make their art perfect. They can only draw or paint what they see. They cannot actually know what goes on inside the heart of the person they draw. Cunning, a noun here, means skill or ability, what in the Greek tradition would have been considered a technique, from which we derive our word technology, and indeed technique, more this rather than necessarily something that is underhand or ill-intentioned or sly, as we would probably understand it today. Absolutely most impactful here in Sonnet 24 is the final couplet, the realisation that no matter how smitten I am by your beauty, and although I metaphorically keep a picture of you in my heart, I actually don't know how you feel. 
This goes a long way to answering one of the principal questions we have been asking ourselves for a while now. How does the young man feel about all this and about Shakespeare? In Sonnet 23, we got the impression that all is not entirely hunky-dory, that William Shakespeare felt the need to both excuse his own inability to speak the right words at the right time and to educate the young man in the ways of a more refined love. And here now we are left with this devastating insight. My eyes feed you into my heart. I am here holding on to my love for you but I don't know if you love me. You don't tell me or show me through your actions, otherwise I would know. You stay aloof enough for me to remain unsure. When I, here again, I, your podcaster, Sebastian Michael, researched and wrote my play, The Sonneteer, which is entirely about this relationship, I quite soon started to get the feeling this was going to be a play as much about power as it is about passion, and ultimately it revealed itself to be even about possession. We are not at possession yet, but power begins to make itself felt. We saw a glint of it in Sonnet 23, when William Shakespeare was left tongue-tied and had to explain how it is that he doesn't come up with the right words, which, as we noted, suggests the young man has either criticised or ridiculed or compared him unfavourably to someone else. And here now we come to understand that after all these sonnets, after all this pouring out of admiration, adulation, amorization, if you allow me to coin such a term here, Shakespeare has not actually got back all that much. In Sonnet 22, we wondered about this. We wondered whether Shakespeare's saying about the young man and his heart, thou gavest me thine not to give back again, was wishful thinking or rooted in something that offered him certainty. And here now, we are left in no doubt that there is doubt, that maybe the young man hasn't actually done or said anything to allow Shakespeare to know for sure where he is at. Or, indeed, maybe Shakespeare felt sure then, but doesn't feel sure now. Maybe the young man has since done or said things that make Shakespeare come out with these two lines of abject reality check. We don't know. We only have the words, but the words here take a turn towards limbo. From the heaven of knowing, or at least believing, or even just believing that I could believe that my heart is in yours, and yours is just as much in mine, I am now in a place where I don't know. It is not altogether too adventurous to infer that the complexity of this sonnet is a direct reflection of the by now complex relationship. What am I, the poet William Shakespeare, here presenting? I look at you, and the way I see you is how I then preserve you as a picture in my heart. To understand who you really are, you need to look at that picture through me. It is a truer reflection of you than any other that is available to you. Your eyes, meanwhile, are windows to my heart, and through these windows the sun gets to gaze on you, which to do it finds delightful. 
Now the sun is the life-giving source of energy and light for us all. So if the sun gazes on you, then so does our known universe, our world, everyone. The world, through your eyes, gets to see you as you are because of how I depict you. But, alas, I cannot know who you really are, because it is, after all, only my eyes that have drawn you, and they cannot know your heart. If I am to know your heart, then something other than my eyes has to be involved. It cannot be just about your appearance and my perception of you. It is almost as if to pick up on the anachronistic fairground metaphor we left off with in the last episode, William Shakespeare had wandered into a hall of mirrors where he spotted his young lover and now is trying to work out what is what and who is who and where is where. And these, you may have experienced also, I certainly have, are not unusual disorientations when you are in love. Editors like to point out that the connection between the heart and the eye is a Renaissance commonplace, and we already observed that perspective is of unambiguous importance to the art of the day, so it is possible, certainly in theory, that Shakespeare here mostly just goes off on an exercise of poetic acrobatics. But no sooner do you put this sonnet into the context of what has gone before and what comes next, then you realise just how unlikely this is. Nothing is certain, we know, but this is a good moment to remind ourselves that in the absence of certainty, likelihood is our friend. And knowing how we got here, and looking out towards what follows, the much more likely explanation, if that's the word to use, for this poem and its existence and its unnerving complexity is that the relationship between William Shakespeare and his young man absolutely exists and has absolutely just got unnervingly complex. There's one specific detail about Sonnet 24 which is worth pointing out, and you may have noticed it yourself if you've been listening very carefully indeed. Sonnet 24 is the first, and as it happens, only sonnet in the entire series that uses both the formal address, you and yours, and the informal address, thou, thy, and thine, in the same poem. Now, whether this is significant here or not, we don't know. Whether it's conscious or not, we don't know. We cannot say for certain that Shakespeare has made an active decision to use you in these first two lines of the second quatrain of Sonnet 24, where he continues the sonnet by saying, For through the painter must you see his skill to find where your true image pictured lies. But if you've been following Sonnet Car, you may remember that we noted that when Shakespeare switched from the less formal, more familiar form of address, thou, to the more formal and more polite form of address, you, that this happened in sonnets where one might argue a line was being crossed that hadn't previously been crossed. The first time 
I, the poet William Shakespeare, use you, is in Sonnet 13, which also happens to be the first sonnet where I call the young man love and dear my love. And we ventured that there's a possibility that Shakespeare being so much more familiar in the choice of words is signalling to the young man that he's aware of his status in relation to the young man who is, as far as anyone can tell, almost certain to be a young nobleman. And we have talked about this in great detail already, so I won't go into it now. That Shakespeare uses the more formal form of address to soften the impact of the much more intimate words he's using inside the poem. And the second time Shakespeare uses you instead of thou is in sonnets 15 and 16, which come as a pair, where he says to the young man, and all in war with time for love of you, as he takes from you, I engraft you new. And it's probably best if you listen to the episodes on 15 and 16 to get the explanation of what this all means. But again, these are two sonnets where Shakespeare comes much, much closer to being intimate verbally with the young man. And there again, we thought it may be the case that he is acknowledging that the young man is of a high social status by addressing him as you. Here in Sonnet 24, that isn't really the case. We can't really say that this sonnet, in its choice of words or in what it says, is particularly intimate or particularly risky or particularly daring, but it is particularly complex. And so it is perhaps another indication of the level of complexity that the relationship has now reached. It could be argued, and I have to say this is now a little tentative, so as not to say adventurous, but it could just be argued that for me, the poet, to say to the young nobleman that it's through my eyes, and only through my eyes, that he can see his own true self, that this is quite a presumptuous suggestion, and it could well be potentially, that it is for this reason that Shakespeare here uses the same technique by employing the more formal you to soften the impact of this quite bold assertion. I do have to emphasise that these elaborations are effectively conjecture. We really don't know whether Shakespeare meant to signal anything or whether it just happened in the process of writing. I, as a writer, am inclined to assume that another writer, no matter of which era and in which genre, knows what they're doing and places words deliberately and knowingly on the page. But we can't be certain that this is the case here. We have to entertain the possibility that it just happened and that there is no significance to you and thou being used in the same poem, even if Shakespeare did so unconsciously or subconsciously, then there is still some significance to this, because the subconscious mind is incredibly powerful, and we very often say things 
without actually realizing it. And through saying them and through the way we are saying them, impart information about how we feel about where we are at. And note one particularly interesting detail, which mostly, if not indeed entirely, gets overlooked. These good turns that eyes for eyes have done here are by no means equal. My eyes have drawn your shape, and they have done so in table of my heart. And this portrait of you that my eyes have drawn, for which read painted, which is, after all, something that requires careful study and execution, is, and as far as I'm concerned, will be hanging in my bosom shop. Your eyes, by contrast, are merely windows to my breast. The sun, and therefore the world, looks through your eyes onto my heart where you are pictured by my eyes. Your eyes serve both as a window for the world and as a mirror to yourself as I see you, but they do not do anything to reflect me. Certainly not directly. Does it all make sense? Logically, perhaps not so much. This is a recurring theme we get with these sonnets, that logic is not William Shakespeare's strongest suit. But William Shakespeare might be laughing at us if he isn't turning in his grave for being so meticulous and precise in our attempt at understanding just what exactly he is trying to say. Because we don't know how long Shakespeare laboured over each of these sonnets, but we do know that he wrote fast. We know that in order for his plays to have been performed at the times when they were entered into the stationer's register, he had to turn them out at a rate of several a year, sometimes within weeks of each other. We don't know how many of these sonnets are actually addressed to the fair youth, but our common understanding is that it is all, or if not all, then most of the first 126. And we will learn, quite a bit further down the line in sonnet 104, that by then the two men have known each other for three years. So, bearing in mind his theatrical output, his work as an actor which took him on slow and arduous tours where he was on horseback for long periods, and the uneven nature of this, as of almost any relationship, which clearly goes through phases of higher and lower intensity, we can assume that he wrote at least some of them really rather quickly, within a day or two without having all that much time to rewrite or revise them or even to think them through in their actual logical argumentation. These are, lest we forget, poems of passion after all, and while they often give way to reflection, to observation and to what we might today consider self-evaluation, they do principally stem from the emotional turmoil that comes with being in love. And love has yet to find a way to be purely rational. What matters then, here as elsewhere in the canon, where we struggle to make sense, is not so much the sense itself as the sentiment overall. And here, as elsewhere, the sentiment is entirely clear. I, the poet, William Shakespeare, am in love, but I cannot at this point in the proceedings be at all sure whether you, the young man I am in love with, 
are also in love with me? And if so, to what degree, in what way? I love you, but I do not know your heart. And if this sounds like a bump in the road, then that's because it most certainly is. We're about to pick up a dizzying speed with the newly assured and joyfully assertive sonnet 25, but what goes up must come down and there is another and much more painful thud just around the corner. And so I do hope you will join me again here on Sonnetcast as we recite, reveal and relive the sonnets of William Shakespeare.